It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So two weeks ago, we kind of explored some messages from Darlene Deibler, and I'm going to go into that a little bit more today. This message is called, Lord, I'm Available, and our theme scripture that I felt was so fitting for the portions of her message that I'm going to highlight is Hebrews 12, 11. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that is absolutely Darlene Dibler's life in a nutshell. She went through things that most of us can't even wrap our minds around, and yet what God did in her life, that pure gold refined in the fire, was absolutely beautiful. So a recap of the session that we did two weeks ago was called Never for a Moment, and I just want, for those of you who may not have heard that message, I just want to give a quick snapshot of it. As a reminder, I said this two weeks ago, but I first became acquainted with Darlene Dibler's book, Evidence Not Seen, and her message during a time in my life when I was really going through a significant struggle. So she was the first woman missionary to trek into interior Dutch New Guinea. Her husband was the first one in, and this was a trail on which many men had died. It was very, very dangerous, and she was just this young, 20, young 20s, just newly married, ready to, you know, fresh on the mission field, and God just gave her a tremendous grace to handle incredible weights prior to even the more significant struggle she would go through later. And so once the war broke out, she and her husband were called back to the coast, out of the interior, and her husband was taken prisoner by the Japanese army, and then she was taken prisoner by the Japanese army. And so we're going to look at some of those moments from the time when she was a a prisoner. After the war, though, she miraculously lived, which if you know her story at all, it truly was a miracle. She, God did such an incredible work of redemption, even though she lost her husband and lost everything in that season of her life. She eventually remarried to someone who was just as passionate about interior New Guinea as her first husband had been, as she was, and they went to New Guinea and worked among the Dani tribe for over 40 years, pioneered the work among the Dani tribe. And so in her book, Evidence Not Seen, Darlene shares the experiences that she went through specifically when she became a prisoner of war. And I feel like what impacted me the most in hearing all of those stories was that she lived her life with with this heart posture that constantly said to God, Lord, I'm available. And as I read what she had to face and how she made herself fully available to God through every horrific thing that she went through, it completely inspired me, it challenged me, it really changed my life, it changed my approach to trials and difficulties. Because we can read, okay, trials make us stronger, they make us more like Christ, but to hear somebody walk through that refiner's fire and come out with that pure gold, just to see a a visual illustration of that was so impactful to me. So as I shared two weeks ago, someone gave me an audio message given by Darlene Deibler after she had spent 40 plus years on the mission field. It was recorded near her hometown in Iowa around 1980. Every bit of this message is riveting and powerful and just has you on the edge of your seat. So it's really hard to draw excerpts that I feel would be the most helpful for you to hear, but I picked four. And so I want to highlight these four aspects of her story. These are all really hard moments in her story to even listen to because they they are filled with pain and grief and heartache 
but they showcase the power and the faithfulness of God unlike anything I may have ever heard, any other message or testimony I have ever heard. So the first clip that we're going to listen to is about five minutes and it's called, I called it Sorrow Upon Sorrow. So just for some context, she has been pulled away from the interior of New Guinea, these people that she was investing into, people that she loved. She had this adoptive, adopted son among those tribal people that cried when, he, when she had to leave. And so that was a heartache in, it, in and of itself. But then the Japanese came, they took all the, uh, the men away from their missionary compound, and so she had to say goodbye to her husband, didn't know if she would ever see him again. Then they took all of the women and children to an internment camp. And in this camp, it was, you know, exactly like what you hear about concentration camps, just disease and torture and death and guards that are beating people and starvation. And so that was what she was going through as this young American missionary who had only been married for a short time had to say goodbye to her husband and was now a prisoner of war. Disease all around her. She herself was sick. And so this is something that happened after she had been in the camp for some time. We're going to listen to this, this five-minute clip of when she found out what happened to her husband. One morning, we saw a truck coming in. And it came in, we heard, from Paripari. Now that was the area to which they had taken our husbands. It was about 100 kilometers north of our camp. And we saw a priest get out. And then we saw a little fellow who was to function as the second in command. And this priest was named Father Bill. And all of the women, as soon as they could find him alone, they would try to get to him to ask how their husbands or their children were. And there were several times I started over. I thought, well, I'm going to ask him about Russell. And the Lord would always say, not now. And I said, all right, Lord, these other people don't know you. I had absolute peace concerning my husband. And I said, they need to be comforted concerning their husband and their children up there, the young men. And after he had been there about three months, there was a night when they had Mass. And at that Mass, he had said to the people, there's someone in this camp, I cannot tell you who it is. I cannot tell you the circumstances. But if you know how to pray, pray for this person. Well, as soon as their mass was dismissed, everybody was coming through the barracks and whispering about this person in the camp that needed prayer. And all of us began to wonder about whom he had been see speaking. The next morning, Mrs. Yalstra, she was the Dutch person who was our camp leader under the Japanese camp commander. And she came over to the barracks and she said, Mevrouw Dibler, may I speak to you? And I said, yes. We walked out. We talked about the work. I said, I have still several of these young women in my camp. And I said, we're picking up the work for those that cannot work any longer. And she said, finally, stopping and looking at me, she said, I didn't come really to talk to you about the work. She said, I came to tell you that your husband up in the camp in Pari Pari has been very ill. And I looked at her and I saw the tears in her eyes. And I grabbed her shoulders and I said, Mrs. Yastra, you don't mean he's gone. She said, yes, some three months ago he died in the camp in Pari Pari. It was one of those moments when I thought the Lord had left me. I turned away from her. I said, but God, 
And immediately he spoke to me. He said, My child, did I not say to you that when thou passest through the waters, and these are waters of sorrow, that I would be with you? And through the floods, they would not overflow you, and neither would the fire kindle upon you. I said, All right, Lord, but I need to control my tears. There's so much sorrow in this camp. But in the night hours, on my upper rack, the tears would flow. And then my Lord would come to me, and he would speak peace to my heart. And I learned experientially about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I know that there is a peace that cometh after sorrow of my hopes surrendered to him, whatever it takes. And I surrendered my husband and my married life to him, of hopes surrendered, not of hopes fulfilled, a peace that looketh not upon tomorrow, but only on a tempest that is stilled, a peace not now in joys excessed, nor in the happy life of love secure, But in the unerring strength the heart possesses, have victories won while learning to endure. There is a peace that's in sacrifice secluded, of hopes surrendered, not of hopes fulfilled. And I'm not talking about the peace that over Eden brooded. That was an untried peace. I'm talking about the peace that triumphed in Gethsemane when my Lord said, Not my will, but thine be done. And I bowed before my Lord, for I had said to him as a little girl, I'll go anywhere, Lord, no matter what it costs. And I meant it with all my heart. So throughout this series, we've been just catching glimpses of what I would consider true missionaries, those who really had no boundaries. They didn't say, Lord, I'll go this far and no farther. They said, Lord, I'm all in for you. Whether the mission field was across the world on foreign soil or right in their own backyard, as I talked about last week, we looked at George Mueller, we looked at David Wilkerson, Frank Jenner, people who just said, I'm going to live and die right here in this mission field. Now, all of these people we've been looking at, Stanley Dale and Don Richardson and all the others, I would consider them all true missionaries as God has called us all to be. But they were not perfect. A lot of them had flaws. A lot of them had rough edges. A lot of them had things in their life that would say, well, I really admire this. This isn't something I'd want to emulate. But if you look across the board, there's one thing that I really believe all true missionaries have in common, and it's unconditional availability to God. That is the heart attitude that we see in Darlene Deibler in that dark moment of her life when she couldn't see the end of the story. She, it felt like at first that God had even forsaken her. She had started out with this 
amazing ministry in the interior of New Guinea with her husband, with all these hopes and dreams for the future. And now all of that was ripped away. Everything had been shattered, all of her dreams. And yet she said to God, even in that moment, Lord, I'm available. Her availability to God wasn't just in Iowa when she caught the vision to go be a missionary and she said, yes, Lord, I'm available. Her availability to God was when she was on the mission field and everything felt like it had broken to pieces and she couldn't see what God was even doing and she still said to God, Lord, I'm available. And no matter how many imperfections or flaws or rough edges a true missionary may have or that all of us may have, if that is our heart attitude, God can work through our lives wherever he's placed us. Gladys Aylward, who was an incredible example of a true missionary who went and, and laid her life down in China. At the end of her life, this is something that she said, which really enunciates this kind of unconditional availability to God. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. I don't know who it was. Maybe a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Maybe he died. Maybe he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward and said, well, she's willing. That availability is what God is looking for, not education or special skills or special talents, that unconditional availability to God. And that's what Gladys Elward did. That's what she said to God, Lord, I'm available, and look what God did through her life. So here is the heart attitude of a true, true missionary, Lord, I'm available. And it's not just an availability when you're on the summer camp high and you get inspired. It's the availability where you're in the trenches and everything's hitting you at once and you can't see which end is up and you are still saying to God, Lord, I'm available. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter how many temptations come against us, no matter how many disappointments we face, no matter how misunderstood or reviled we are, it's that unconditional availability to God. For him to do his refining work in us, for him to write our story however he sees fit, no matter the cost. I just want to highlight some glimpses of this unconditional availability in some other missionaries that I've studied throughout history. Lilius Trotter, she was a woman who lived in Victorian England. She was wealthy. She had the opportunity to be a very famous, respected painter. Yet she gave all of that up to go serve in Algeria. She lived in the slums of Algeria for over 40 years. And the theme of her life was this, holiness, not safety, is the end of our calling. People would have looked at her life and said, well, you've given up too much. You could have served God in Victorian England. You had all this money. You had fame. You could have been famous. You could have used that platform. And she went to obscurity. She went to hardship because she said, holiness, not safety, is the end of our calling. She had her eyes fixed on a better prize. C.T. Studd, we know a lot about him around Ellerslie. He's just that fiery, passionate, all-in-for-Jesus kind of man. And he also gave up incredible wealth and an incredible career, athletic career where he could have been famous and laid his life down on the mission field for the rest of his life. And this was the theme of his life. Well, he had many themes of his life, but this is one of them. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. No sacrifice. He was willing to give anything, holding nothing back. And it was a delight to him to say, Lord, I'm available. Oswald Chambers, he was the one who 
came, came up with all of those amazing devotionals in My Utmost for His Highest. <clears throat> they were all excerpts taken from his addresses to those he would speak to and minister to. And he died fairly young on the mission field in Egypt, gave up, again, incredible opportunities in art and in music to serve what God had called him to do. And he wrote this, We have no right in Christian service to be guided by our own interests and desires. The delight of sacrifice is that I lay down my life for my friend, Jesus. I don't throw my life away, but I willingly and deliberately lay it down for him and his interests. That was what Darlene believed. She wasn't wasting her life, throwing away this opportunity to be married and have a comfortable life. She willingly and deliberately laid it down for her friend, Jesus. John and Betty Stam, a young couple who committed themselves to the mission field and went to China, and they hadn't been there very long when they were captured by Chinese communists and beheaded. But their martyrdom inspired hundreds of missionaries around the world to go and be courageous and lay down their lives. And this is something that Betty Stam wrote in her Bible at the age of about 18. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries killed, martyred by attempting to take the gospel into the Akas who had never been reached before in South America. He said this, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord, have it all. That is unconditional availability to God. There is such a big difference between getting pumped up and inspired and looking at the romance of missions and saying, I want to go, and that place of complete surrender, Lord, no matter what it costs, even if my hopes are derailed, even if my dreams are disappointed, even if what I always imagined, it's, it's going in a different direction, Lord, I'm still available to you. If we're not in that place of unconditional availability to God, we just need to ask him by his grace to do that miracle within our hearts because only his grace can make us unconditionally available. That is not something in our human nature, in our flesh, that we want to do. We're very protective of our dreams, our goals, our rights, our plans, the way we want our story to turn out. So ask him for the grace to cultivate that unconditional availability to him because that's when he can really work through your life to change this world. We are called every moment of every day to sincerely and continually say to him, Lord, I'm available. The second clip that I want to look at is when you think that her story can't get any more difficult. She's already been in a concentration camp. She's already lost her husband. She's already been sick. She's already been surrounded by death and disease and heartache. And yet there was another trial that God asked her to walk through, and it's when the Kempeitai, which are the most dreaded group of the Japanese military, came and took her prisoner. There came a time when there was another group that frightened us far more than the shock troops ever did. And it was the Kempeitai, the secret police of the Japanese. They were even feared by their own people. Some women had been taken from our camp and some of them returned and some never came back again. Those that did return, they never talked about what happened to them and I was to learn why. 
And this one day, that big black limousine, it was the most beautiful vehicle on the island, and it had been taken over by the Kempeitai. And that, when we called it the death wagon, when it would come in, everybody stopped your work watching to see who was getting out or who was going to be taken. And this one day, they, I saw the young man who was second in command running over to the sewing room, and he came back with Miss Kemp, one of my fellow missionaries. Then I saw him run down to the garden where we raised the vegetables for the Japanese. And I saw him come back with Miss Seeley, another of my fellow missionaries. And they got in the car and they took them away. And when they left, I felt like I didn't want to voice it, lest it would make it come true. And we waited a week, and then we waited another week for them to return. And one day, we saw the big black death wagon coming. Came into the camp, and as it pulled up in front of the headquarters, we all stopped, waiting to see if Miss Kemp and Miss Seeley were getting out. But just two officers got out, and they ran up into the headquarter office. And I knew in my heart they had come for me. I started to walk over toward the office because it never was wise to keep them waiting. And I saw the second in command come running down and he motioned for me to come quickly. He said, yes, they're calling for you. So I ran and I ran up into the office and these two men started to walk around me. Languages have come easily for me. I have worked in seven languages. But I tried not to learn the Japanese language. I had certain commands I had to give as a barracks leader, but I did not want to learn their language because if you did, you were immediately suspect as a spy. I didn't know what they were say saying. The only thing I understood was America. And then they would laugh. And one of them walked over and put a paper down in front of me, and, and I looked at it, and he said, uh, is that your name? I said, yes, sir. He said, you are Darlene Daibre. I said, yes, sir, I'm Darlene Daibre, but I didn't write that. He said, I didn't even ask if you wrote it. He said, but what do you know about Morse code? I said, nothing, sir. I said, I don't know what you're tapping out there. I said, I really, and they were watching my face to see if there was any recognition of whatever it was that they were tapping out there on the desk. I said, sir, I do not know Morse code. Oh, he said, you go back and get another dress. We'll take you somewhere else. We'll find out how much you know about Morse code. So I ran back to the barracks, and I reached up and grabbed my Bible first, and then a, a house coat that I made up in the mountains. And I, I wrapped it around my Bible, and I came running back. Immediately, I was put in the back seat of the car. Two soldiers jumped in on either side of me with their guns and bayonets fixed on their guns. And the officers got in the front of this limousine. I was taken out of the camp and down to the city of Makassar, and I knew Makassar well because I had worked there before I was able to go to New Guinea. And as we pulled up in front of this one building, I knew that it was our former native insane asylum. And it was a circular drive there. And, and as we went past this first block of cells, I saw Miss Kemp hanging on the bars of the window. And I could see her arms were black and blue, and she was shaking her head at me. And as I looked at her, I realized that that woman in two weeks had become just skin and bone. And I cried out. I said, Lord, you took Russell, must I now go through this? And so sweetly my Lord answered me. He said, my child, it's the ones that I love, that I discipline, that I chasten. People say we're not to ask why, but never was my Lord more 
the Son of Man, when that day on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was the Son of Man, the Son of God, bearing my sins. He knew why he had come, yes. I knew that God chastens those. As I got out of the car, I said, Lord, I am available. So here is another moment of unconditional availability to God. Now, that story baffles me because I can't imagine myself in a situation, especially as a young 20-something missionary who newly married, just fresh onto the mission field without a lot of life experience, to be in that stressful of a situation, that hopeless of a situation, and seeing those other missionaries and how they were treated and just the fear and yet her first response is, Lord, I'm available. That's incredible, and that is such an evidence of the enabling grace of God. So in the most terrifying moment of her life, she yielded to this purifying, refining work of God's Spirit. She saw this bigger picture that God wanted to do a deeper work in her through these experiences. It wasn't discipline and chastening in the sense that he was mad at her or angry with her and he didn't teach her a lesson but this opportunity for amazing purification and growth and deepening in her intimacy with him and her faith in him. She trusted him. She knew he loved her. This was a loving opportunity, a loving invitation, and she believed that he would use it for his glory, that he would turn all things to good if she would trust him. And that brings me back to our scripture in Hebrews 12, 11. No chastening seems to be joyful but painful, Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When we say, Lord, I'm available to your refiner's fire, whatever it takes, whatever I need to walk through, that you would make me like gold refined in the fire, it is incredible what God can do in our lives. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus gives counsel to the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, who is neither hot nor cold, they are spiritually apathetic, one of his pieces of advice to them is to submit to his refiner's fire that they would be like pure gold. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Now, the refining process of gold, if you've ever studied it, is very interesting. This is just a factual statement in some website I read that tells you all about the refining process of gold. It's kind of an interesting but kind of boring website. But this particular statement was very, stood, very much stood out to me. Refining with flame is one of the oldest methods of refining metals. In ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman, craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible, being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose up to the top of the molten metal. Today, gold is melted at a temperature between roughly 1,832 degrees to 21,632 degrees Fahrenheit. When the mixture reaches this temperature, it melts. Really? Uh, okay. <laughs> That's so shocking that it melts 21,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The metals in the alloy separate one from another upon melting, and all impurities rise to the surface. That's what God does in our lives, that as he kind of puts us through the fire, puts, allows that heat to be turned up in our lives, 
And we began to just sort of melt before him and say, okay, Lord, do your work. The impurities in our lives rise to the surface, and he cleanses them, and he makes our souls like gold refined in the fire. And here's a really interesting truth about refined gold. It is not only precious, it is indestructible. You cannot destroy pure gold. If you simply Google the question, can pure gold be destroyed, this is what you will read. There is no known natural substance that can destroy gold. It can be dissolved by chemical means, but even then it remains as gold, only in a more widely dispersed state. That was evidence to me in Darlene's life as she made herself available to that refiner's fire in that moment when she said, okay, this is unlike anything I've ever imagined having to walk through, but Lord, I'm available. Refine me, purify me through this. Use this to your glory. She became rock solid, unbreakable. You see other people today walking through trials or hardships or difficulties, other Christians, and they respond completely differently. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm available, they, said, they say, Lord, how could you? And that causes incredible spiritual weakness, and, and some even walk away from God. If they go down that path, Lord, how could you? But she said, Lord, I'm unbreakable. And because of that, her faith, her spiritual walk became rock solid, unbreakable. And all throughout her prison experience, they tried to destroy her faith, but it was indestructible. And you'll hear a few more clips about her story, and you think, how did she stay strong in her relationship with God through this? She had that indestructible quality of pure gold. Every trial that came her way made her stronger. Every weight that God put on her shoulders made her even more indestructible in her faith in him. So are we willing to say, Lord, I'm available when his refiner's fire comes? One thing that I've learned in my own life is that God's refiner's fire is what leads to true spiritual fire. We oftentimes think, okay, Lord, I want to have more passion for you. I feel apathetic. I feel blah spiritually. Say, Lord, I submit to your refiner's fire. Because when we allow him to purify us as pure as true gold, we don't push away the difficulty in our life, but we say, Lord, use it to your glory in my life. That's what leads to true spiritual fire. This third clip is called My Cell, My Sanctuary. And this is a beautiful illustration of God's grace, his comfort, and his nearness when we go through the hardest things in our life. Immediately I was taken to the office. The first thing they, he grabbed was my Bible. He said, you can't have that book. You'll sit in that cell and all you'll do is read that and not think about your evil deeds against the Imperial Japanese Army. I thought, what that man doesn't know is that as a child, I began to memorize scripture. Oh, whole books of the Bible, they were all there. God could just drop the needle of the Spirit down on those grooves in my mind and play it back to me. It didn't make any difference. The time came when you had no Bible. How much would you have stored away? I wonder, if you don't put it in, how can he pull it out? And I realized as, as a child, God was preparing me for the, just this moment. And then I went through the next cell block. There was a soldier behind me, and I tell you, the point of a bayonet in your back is a great persuader. And when he yelled, piggy, I piggied. He told me to move out. And I went through this next cell block, and I could hear the other missionary. And I knew that within two weeks, that dear godly woman, Miss Seeley, was a raving maniac. And then we went across the courtyard, 
And there was another cell block back there. The guard was walking along in front of these cells and came to one where the window was completely boarded over so that nobody could see inside that cell. And I looked up at the door because he had stopped to open that door. When I looked up there, I saw that somebody had written in chalk, Orang ini musti mati, this person must die. And I knew I was on death row. When he opened the door, he just got a hold of me and he just slammed me into that cell and I hit the other side and I turned around quickly and I came back to the door and I dropped on my knees and I was watching the end of that key because I knew when it made a complete revolution, I was locked in death row. And suddenly, perspiration, cold perspiration was just running off of me. And then I realized that I was singing. It was a song that I learned in Sunday school up here in Boone, Iowa. And I was sitting there singing, Fear not, little flock. Whatever your lot, he enters all rooms, the doors being shut. He never forsakes. He never is gone. So count on his presence from darkness till dawn. And I counted on his presence. I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. That cell on death row became my sanctuary and my God was there with me. I wasn't fighting against those walls. How truly it was written, iron bars do not a prison make. So I have found from personal experience in my own life that one of the most amazing gifts God has given us in difficult times is just the sweet, comforting presence of his nearness, his closeness. We have the opportunity and the privilege when we're in a time of trial and suffering to experience his presence and intimacy with him in a special way that we really can't discover any other way. Paul called it the fellowship of his sufferings. And to Paul, that was a great gift and privilege to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Not I had to endure all this suffering and hardship and it was really difficult, but it was like this beautiful experience called the fellowship of his sufferings. It says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we looked at this quote last, a couple weeks ago when I was sharing the other message on Darlene Dibler, but my favorite quote from her book was this, when I took my eyes off the circumstances that were overwhelming me, over which I had no control and looked up, my Lord was there. Deep in my heart, he whispered, I'm here. Even when you don't see me, I'm here, never for a moment are you out of my sight? And that is how she lived every moment in that cell in death row. Heartache upon heartache, and yet she looks back at that time in her life and she remembers that amazing, incredible, comforting, all-encompassing presence of God with her in that cell. So when we're walking through difficulty, one of the most amazing gifts available to us is that sweet, tender presence of the Lord. It's an amazing privilege to share in the fellowship of his suffering. So instead of pulling away from him during hard times, we need to welcome his nearness. Take advantage of the fact that you're going through something hard because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And as so many Christians throughout the years have testified, Christ's presence is so rich and so sweet that even a prison cell can be a sanctuary. I read a story about an American soldier who was taken captive by the Japanese also during the war. He was in Japan as a prisoner, and he was not a Christian at the time he was taken prisoner. His prison cell was horrific, and he was starving, he was tortured, and yet somehow in that cell, somebody gave him a Bible, and he started to read this Bible, and as he did, he gave his life to Jesus Christ, and pretty soon he recognized the fact that he didn't want to be anywhere else besides his prison cell, and he actually prayed that God would keep him there longer so he could enjoy the presence, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and just dive into Scripture and just just get to know who Jesus was. It became a sanctuary for him. And I've often told that story of the persecuted man who was put into prison for over a year in solitary confinement because of his faith. This happened in China. And after a year, he was released. And he lived his whole entire year in this little closet type of room with no nothing, no light, no sound, no human companionship, just a plate of food pushed under the door once a day. But when he got out, his face was glowing, and people said, how did you survive that, and how did you make it through? And he said, oh, that was like a honeymoon with Jesus. Just an entire year, just me and him. It was beautiful. It was an amazing experience. His presence was so near to me. I would actually love to go back and do that again. That's solitary confinement for a year. A prison cell can become a sanctuary because the presence of God is so sweet. As I said, when I first read Darlene's book, I was going through an intense personal trial, and I felt like there weren't very many people in my life who could relate to it or understand it. And I felt discouraged, and I felt alone and isolated, and I didn't feel like there was anybody in my life that I could really talk to where they would understand and at that time, I, I stumbled across a statement from one of Amy Carmichael's books where, where she was talking about a very similar struggle that was private that she could not share with others. And she said, I am dispirited. I cannot speak to anyone of the cause. It is private. And God's answer to her was this. I heard thee in the secret place of the storm. In the secret place among the unspoken things, there I am. And then, of course, we have Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in that secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I have learned that it is an incredible privilege and blessing to meet God in that secret place that Jesus talks about, going to meet your Father in the secret place. It's a private place in, that soul, in your soul where only he can comfort and only he can understand. If he brings you to a place where you feel so isolated or so alone, nobody understands, you can know that he's ready to meet you there in that secret place. Even when nobody else in the world can offer anything helpful, he knows, he hears, he meets us there in that secret place. He is the all-sufficient one. He is the God of all comfort. That's what Darlene was talking about when she said, I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. She was explaining the God of all comfort. It says in Psalm 108 that his help is, so, is far superior than the help of men. It says all human help is worthless compared to the help of God. So when we feel alone, when our struggles are too private to share with others, or if we're cut off from all human help, he is there in that secret place. So my encouragement to you through this story is not to let a season of loneliness or pain go to waste. So, so often when we're feeling alone, when we're feeling lonely, when we're walking through something hard, we just want to get out of that situation as fast as we possibly can. Instead, let it draw you deeper into that place of intimacy with him. Meet him in that secret place. Experience what Paul was talking about when he said the fellowship 
of Christ's suffering. Our last clip is called, He Giveth More Grace. And this is probably the most powerful, hard to hear, but powerful of all of her entire testimony. I was left there to hear the awful cries coming out of Philomacele's cell, to hear those that were being taken off a death row and taken to the hearing room down at the end of that courtyard, to hear their screams and hear men crying out to have mercy, to hear them being beaten and dropped like a wet sack on those ceramic tiles of that hearing room, and then silence, and I knew they had fainted. And I would hear them dragged past the cell, taken down to one of the other cells, and locked in. There was no sound until sometimes in the night hours they would come to, and I would hear the awful crying and weeping of those people. I um, got thinner and thinner. I not only had dysentery, but I took cerebral malaria, and then I got very, very. And the day came when they took me to the hearing room. I um, had asked the Lord that he would really make me a good soldier for him because the very last words that Dr. Jeffrey said to me as he was being taken away, he leaned over the tailgate of the truck, and he was a Scotsman, and I was a Macintosh. And he said, Lassie, whatever you do, be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. And those words went through my mind, and I said, God, I'm asking you to help me no matter what they do to me. Don't let me cry. Don't let me break down in front of them. And I said, if I ever get back to America, and any of my people ever hear about what happened to me, I didn't want you to be ashamed of me. I went in for the hearing. They accused me of being an American spy. They said they had a Chinese who came, testified against me. They said I had a radio. I'd been in the jungle listening to the allies and communicating with them about troop movements, planes, everything. And I'd say, no, I haven't. I was beaten here right between the eyes. They blacked both of my eyes. And they used judo chops on me. And many times I thought my neck was going to be broken. They knew exactly where to put it. They knew exactly how to strike you on the face without breaking the eardrum, but almost broke your neck. And I never shed a tear before them. I want to tell you that tonight. You can do many things you thought you never could do with God's help. And I would come back to that cell, the guard would open the door, and I would step inside. And as soon as he was gone, and I knew nobody could hear me, Though I never shed a tear before them, I'll be honest with you, I wept literally buckets of tears. And I just throw myself out on the floor, and I said, God, I can't go through another one. Please, Lord, not another one. I just can't do it, Lord. You help me this time, but please, I can't do that. And I say, Lord, please, no more. And my Lord would always answer me. He would say, my child, my grace is sufficient for you. Not it's going to be, not it has been, but it is right now sufficient for you. Then I knew why it was that the Lord had put it on my heart to memorize a poem by Annie Johnson Flint, 
woman who all her life suffered from rheumatoid arthritis. She lay in pain all her life. But look at the poems that came out of the heart of that broken woman. And one of them I had memorized, and two of our missionaries had set it to music just before the war at our last conference. And I would sit up in the cell, and I'd take my skirt after I, and it was a dress that had been sent to me from home, from Boone, my friends, had a full circular skirt, and I would mop up the tears because I didn't dare have anything on the floor. If I had left anything on the floor, if I had vomited, or anything, you'd be made to eat it up. There are other things I can't tell you. But I would sit up in that cell and I would begin to sing, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, He has multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance and our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, then Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. I would know that I could go through another one and another one. What you find out when you read her story is at this point when she was being tortured like that, she weighed 60 pounds. They were only giving her two-thirds cups of rice that had maggots in it every day. And her hair, she was in her 20s, had turned completely white. So talk about the incredible stress on her body. And then to be tortured in that way is absolutely incredible. And I think that it is humanly impossible for a sickly, she had three diseases that were all could be fatal, cerebral, malaria, and beriberi, and dysentery. She had all of that. Her legs were swollen out of proportion. She weighed only 60 pounds. Her hair had turned completely white. She was so weak she could barely stand up. And then she's taken to the interrogation room and beaten that way. And so it is physically impossible for someone in that condition to endure the way that she did, that kind of suffering, but be a good soldier. That was her desire to be a good soldier, not to even shed a tear before her enemies. And she never did. Because she said, you can do many things you never thought you could do with God's help. Oswald Chambers said that as well. When we deliberately choose to obey God, he will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist us with all his almighty power. With the enabling grace of God, nothing is impossible. And one of the reasons this story so impacted me is because there were so many areas of my life and ministry and things were hard and difficult where I felt like I can't go on, I can't keep doing this, I can't carry this much weight, this is too much pressure, I need to make my life easier and simpler somehow. And then I would hear the story and recognize what the grace of God can do. With God, nothing is impossible. A resounding theme through almost all of our Ellerslie messages is that grace is more than the hug or the favor of God. It's the supernatural enabling power of God working in us and through us to do what we could never do in our own strength. 
And that is what I learned through her story, and I began to apply that. I had known about the grace of God, but I began to apply it at an even, even deeper level whenever I was tempted to say, I can't. I would remember how the grace of God worked in her life when it, it was absolutely impossible for her to endure what she endured without the grace of God. A lot of times when we imagine going through trials and suffering and persecution, we fail to look at those things through the lens of God's grace. We, we hear other people's stories and we think, well, good for them, but I could never do that. I, that would, they must be a special Christian that got this extra measure of courage or endurance. I could never do that. There was nothing special about these Christians other than the fact that they understood the enabling grace of God and they made themselves available to it. And we have that same grace available to us. We so often fail to look at trials or things that might happen to us in the future through the lens of God's grace. But Paul, when he was, in a, when he was a prisoner in a Roman cell, he, he exhorted the, ch- the church with these words, Stand firm without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. He's saying that in the midst of being a prisoner and suffering. He also wrote these words in a Roman cell, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He learned that secret of enduring, of being content, of being courageous and strong and joyful and peaceful in any situation, and that secret was the enabling grace of God. Corey Ten Boom has an amazing story about that ticket of God's grace that is given to us right at the moment that we need it. And when she was a little child, she was so afraid. What if some of our family members need to die? What if some of us are going to be killed for our faith? What if I have to suffer for my faith? And her father explained the grace of God to her in this way. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look in your heart and find the strength you need just in time. So if any of you are feeling compelled to obey God, and whatever that looks like, that might be right in your own family or your own community, or it might be on the other side of the world, but there's that fear, how could I do that? How could I endure? How could I go through that? What if this happens? What if that happens? Remember that ticket of God's grace. He will give you what you need just in time. And as Corey Ten Boom wrote later in her life, after she had suffered tremendously, after she had lost family members, because of their faith, and after she had been in a German concentration camp, she learned experientially the truth of her father's words, and she wrote this, it is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. Next time you face a moment where you're tempted to say, I can't go on, I can't handle this, I can't do this, instead of giving into those thoughts and letting those words become your reality, ask God for that ticket of his grace because it's there right at the moment when we need it. It's sufficient no matter what we're facing, as you see so clearly in Darlene's story. As she said, you can do many things you never thought you could with God's help. Here are a couple powerful quotes from Amy Carmichael, another missionary hero of mine, just talking about some of the biggest struggles she ever went through and how God met her there. And she wrote kind of this analogy about a son who said, I can no longer. I can do this no longer. And here was God's answer back. His father said, you can. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Is tribulation a new thing to any child of mine? Should you expect to be without pressure, battering toil and tears? All my servants had these in abundant measure. 
Look around and you will see their footsteps in the dust of the road. But they had strong consolation and so have you. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. When you look at Darlene's story, you don't see defeat and pain and heartache and brokenness and what a horrible thing she went through. I mean, she did go through horrible things, but you see the triumph of God because of how she responded to God's ability in her darkest time. Here's another quote from Amy Carmichael. The son said, my enemies live and are mighty, but I have requested that they should not triumph over me, but I have come to the end of my resources. Doesn't that perfectly enunciate what we just heard from Darlene? She prayed that she would be a good soldier, that she would not weep before them, but she didn't feel like she could go through another interrogation. And this is Amy Carmichael's response of how God answered her, and this is how God answered Darlene. Have you come to the end of my resources? Is your father's hand shortened? Do you not know whom you have believed? Know your Lord, and your heart shall find rest in him. Your enemies shall not triumph over you or those whom I have given you. Know your Lord, and your heart shall find rest in him. The more we know him, the more we know that his grace is sufficient. And I just want to finish with that poem by Annie J. Flint that she quoted in that last clip because it is so powerful whenever we feel depleted, whenever we feel we can't go on, whenever we look ahead to the future and there's fear there, remember these words. This was written by a woman who spent all of her life bedridden from a painful disease. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, Ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy Lord, will up, and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That is available to every single one of us right now at the very moment that we need it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for testimonies like these that showcase your comfort and your presence and your power and your faithfulness and your grace. Lord, we pray that you would make us men and women of courage who know that your grace is sufficient and who say to you, no matter what, unconditionally, Lord, I am available. Only your grace can equip us to do that, but we make ourselves available for you to do that work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.